0: Welcome to Asked and Answered, Revision Legal's podcast where we discuss law, technology, and the news and how it all intersects. And uh, we're, we're happy to have you here today. John, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, doing great. It's just Office Action Friday
1: here right now. Yeah. It's like a casual Friday, but not casual
0: at all. <laughs> Office actions sound like there's so much action going on. <laughs> um, they're pretty dry
1: yeah so yeah for the listeners office action is basically when you file a trademark and it gets refused we have to write a brief and that's not not interesting it's not actually fun for attorneys it's just an administrative task and office action friday is just an administrative friday yeah
0: it's i really look forward to those these fridays (laughs) Uh, there's so much fun but no it's nice to just get things off checking off the list of uh, things to do and and happy to be home after being in uh, Dubai last week. Yes, uh, at the the Domainers Meet 2016 conference in in Dubai in the UAE. What did you think of Dubai? It's amazing what they've done in 40 years. I mean, to go from a speck in the desert to just an unbelievable city. Um, but I was tied up a lot with the conference. I mean, it was a really interesting conference, tons of great speakers. I wish I could have explored the city more. Uh, certainly an impressive city. Um, and that was my first time in the Middle East,
1: so it was it was quite an experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty jealous. I want to check out the Middle East. So uh, the next time it comes up, I'm going. <laughs> yeah. All right. You're up. I think it's January. Oh, is it? Okay. If I heard right. Yeah. So...
0: So today we planned on talking about um, something that comes up in a lot of lawsuits and uh, you hear about on TV and movies, but I don't know if people really know what it means Um, and maybe this
1: will be helpful for some other attorneys to brush up on this. It's uh, depositions. Yeah. So what's the most famous deposition that you can think of? What's the layperson think about when they think of depositions? You think uh, what Mark Zuckerberg's deposition in the social network?
0: Probably, yeah. That's probably the one that gets the most um, airtime now from, from that movie. You know, Bill Clinton's deposition. Ah. I, I remember watching, um, I don't know what it was, but they were talking about how he agreed to a time limit for the deposition. I mean, in state court, at least in Michigan, there's no time limit. In federal court, depositions are limited to seven hours. And I think if I remember correctly, Clinton agreed to something like two or three hours and then he just put on an absolute show of taking an extremely long time to answer every single question and basically just dragged it out where they they got almost nothing out of it. <laughs> well, and I remember being being hailed as just an absolute piece of work. Well, that's
1: that's the risk when you depose an attorney. He knows the rules and he knows how to exploit them. It's uh it's right up his alley. Yeah,
0: yeah and these depositions are funny because they're for court proceedings that are so formal and structured and depositions are this kind of informal. You're sitting in a conference room, there's no judge. It's just attorneys and a court reporter
1: and you're asking almost anything you want. Yeah, you really can. In in court, you often see attorneys object as to relevance. Well, most of those rules are out the window in a deposition. So you can get things from left field and that particularly might be disturbing for somebody who's never been in a deposition before so you can get questions about your medical history, about your arrest record, things that you may not believe that are relevant, uh all of a sudden become the focus of an inquiry. So yeah, it can be it, it can be weird for many people.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, to talk about how does a deposition work? I mean, it is literally you go into a conference room at an office or at a hotel and Your attorney will usually be there, should be there. Uh, There'll be opposing counsel, the one that will be asking questions of the deponent. There'll be a court reporter. uh, And then also parties are allowed to be at the deposition as well. So there can be a lot of people watching. Some are videotaped. You know, it certainly adds a level of, I guess, being uncomfortable with a huge video camera staring at you knowing they're picking up everything you say and how you look and how you react to questions, all that counts. And so you're sitting in this room, you're going to be there a pretty long time, unless it's a quick little deposition. Um, you can expect hours of questions. And, you know, it's, it's informal, but your questions really matter. These are, this will be a preview of your trial testimony. And so attorneys use them to kind of, figure out what people are going to say, what they know, what they don't know, and lock in testimony to kind of build a case as it goes.
1: Yeah, and they I think it's important to note that these depositions are under oath, which means that you have to answer the deposition questions truthfully. But it also means that if you do not answer consistently, then ultimately when you get to trial, uh, you can be what's called impeached, which means that a prior inconsistent statement can be brought to light and it it sheds some light on your credibility or lack thereof at trial. So it's important to understand what you testified to previously, and it's important to testify uh, truthfully during the time of the deposition.
0: You don't want your stories changing. I mean, if if you have one (laughs) side of your story at deposition, it's pretty important that you would stick to that story at trial, and if it changes dramatically or even a little bit, the jury can look at that and say, well, what else changed? What else it maybe isn't exactly the way you originally said it? And you don't ever want to open up that door if if you can't. So, you know, procedurally depositions happen before trial. They're rather informal, but still very important, and there should be time taken on each side to prepare for it, to understand where's it gonna be, how long is it gonna last, what are the types of questions that i'm going to get and the attorney should your attorney should explain how they'll protect you and and so usually through the use of objections
1: yeah Uh, and you typically the way that it works is you have to answer every question that's been presented to you and if you don't then uh you know it's going to become a problem so an attorney objects to the form of the question He objects to the the actual substance of the question. If he's, for example, if opposing counsel is asking you to answer something about the law that you may not know, but it doesn't mean that you can't answer the question. And in fact, you do have to answer the question unless your attorney instructs you otherwise. So it's a little bit different than at trial, where an attorney objects and then you don't answer the question because the objection is sustained. Sustained, excuse me. Here, you have to answer the question either way. And later attorneys will fight over whether or not the question was proper. But as a general rule, unless your attorney instructs you otherwise, you you have to actually lay an answer.
0: Yeah. So really the objections, yes, they matter and yes, they can
1: help. But it's most of the time not going to get you out of answering the question. No, it's not. And again, questions can be out of left field and you still have to answer them and you have to answer them truthfully.
0: Yeah, and I think the the role of the attorney to kind of protect the deponent is also partly not not really technical objections but kind of just almost having your back, being there supporting you, you know, kind of pushing away the other attorney if they're getting a little too aggressive, standing up for you in terms of how you're being questioned, the manner, the tone things like that. I mean, you know, when you're five and a half hours into a deposition, you can get tired and you can get annoyed. And, you know, the attorney, your attorney may send you some signals by the way he defends you and to kind of help you get back on course or to help you get your your mind back and don't get flustered with certain questions. So, you know, the role of the kind of defensive attorney, you know, we're, 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 we're not in control. We're, we're kind of at the mercy of, of the other side, but you can certainly make your presence known and, and still stand up for and help your client.
1: Yeah, I think a really good example is I did a deposition recently, and it, but we must have been four hours in, and the opposing counsel was asking our client whether or not she had ever been or whether she knew what narcissistic personality disorder was. That was the first question. The next question was, had she ever been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder? And this is a business dispute. It has nothing to do with psychology or some kind of medical condition. And then the uh, the opposing counsel proceeded to read the uh, DSM-5, I believe, definition of narcissistic personality disorder to ask her uh, whether she had certain characteristics. And so, you know, obviously, these questions were meant to harass and I'm searching through my rule book at the deposition. I'm texting you, Eric, uh, asking you, you know, do we have any options on what we can do to bring to light this harassing line of questioning? And you said, well, actually, I think there's a piece of the Michigan rules that says that you can record a deposition. And so you sent that section over to me, and I pulled out my cell phone and I said, well, we're going to record the deposition. I slammed it on the table and I said, <laughs> "You can continue with your line of questioning now." And of course, the the line of questioning ended immediately. <laughs> so we are we're there to be your advocate, and though we don't have control, we do understand how far these these quest- these types of questions can be pushed.
0: That was great. I I, I don't I think I was reading an Ickle summary or something of depositions a couple of weeks earlier, and that stuck out, and then it's such a hidden little rule. I mean, I can't imagine most can't imagine many people know of that rule that you're allowed to pull out your phone and record audio record. So you can catch the tone because a written transcript won't reflect the tone of how someone's acting. So what a sneaky little move. That was great.
1: Yeah. And there's a, there's a hundred like that. One of my favorites is to say, and it confuses the hell out of, opposing counsel, and I don't even know why I do it, but I'll say things like, well, is that the question? I want to certify that question because we're taking that question to the judge. And, and opposing counsel will often say, well, what do you mean by certify? I'm like, what? You don't know what cert- certifying the question means? <laughs> we're certifying that question. We're going to take it to the judge. And they'll get- Every attorney's worst
0: nightmare of not knowing, right. like, a basic rule. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's, there's no rule. We just, I mean, it's completely made up, but it works.
0: <laughs> oh, God, that's great. Well, you know, the, I think the idea of, like, control in in a deposition is funny because when you're the defensive attorney, you kind of say, well, I don't have a lot of control over what's being asked. But when you're the one asking questions, it kind of feels like you have all the control but you can really,
1: you know, the person answering the question really wields a lot of power. They really do. You're absolutely right. I, when I try to draft, depo- or at least an outline, you never really draft deposition questions because it's really kind of off the cuff. But when you, when I try to think about deposition questions, I try to feed questions that have yes or no answers so that you can box somebody in almost like a computer. If you were feeding a set of uh, questions to a computer and the computer gave you yes no questions and it branched in a certain way and it could only branch in that way that's the idea of a deposition of course it never goes like that
0: no it never goes the way you think it's gonna go you never get the answers that you want or hope to get it always goes a completely different way and the, you know we when we were preparing for this um, podcast we were watching some of these videos of the celebrity depositions and they do a great job of showing what it's like to really control a deposition as the deponent. I mean, these guys are killing these attorneys. I mean, they cannot get a question out or answered or anything, and it's
1: just because,
0: well, they don't care. or They have enough money, or they don't really care. But it's amazing to see them completely control the, the setting.
1: Yeah, my favorite's Little Wayne because <laughs> Little Wayne just doesn't care. He just sits back, and, and we'll drop this in the show notes, but. Uh, They ask him a question about whether he was in jail, and he's like, I don't know. You tell me. Was I in jail? When was I in jail? (laughs) I don't know.
0: Uh, It's so good because attorneys are just so used to being somewhat in control and just seeing these people come in and acting like they're sleeping and not caring and and Bieber's objecting to the (laughs) questions being asked (laughs) to him. It's so funny. I just can't. I just crack up at these. So. Yeah, there's a Little Wayne podcast, or uh, Deposition, Bieber, Pharrell. These are all really, really entertaining, and we'll put them all in the show notes.
1: Yeah, today. definitely. The Bieber one's the best because he says, he gets asked the question, do you know Selena Gomez? And he says, don't you ever ask me about her. <laughs> and then somebody <laughs> asks him, like, do you know, I can't remember what Usher's real name is. It's like John Usher or something like that. He's like, uh, do you know John Usher? And, and Bieber says, never heard of him. And then yeah. he, the guy says, "Do you know Usher?" he was like, "May I heard of him?" <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's great. So I mean the, the idea of, of being in control as you know as the deponent is something that I think if you've never been in a deposition, it would seem like you wouldn't have that control but you know like the bill clinton thing you do you can kind of set the tone of how things are going to go you can really be difficult um i'm not saying being difficult is always a good idea you know it can really come off bad too um because this trial this deposition transcript could come into trial so it's not like you just want to be a pain in the ass the whole time but there are things you can do that kind of make the other attorney go through all the steps. Um, and not, you know, for one thing, don't answer questions that weren't asked.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. don't give a narrative. That's always the worst possible idea. I mean, it, it, let
0: there be a silence. I mean, one of the most common tactics is to ask a question, deponent answers, the attorney just doesn't say anything deponent feels the pressure of silence continues talking you know that's great because you have no idea what's going to come out of that person's mouth and hopefully they say something they're under they're they're uncomfortable they say something that maybe is against their own interest that's what you want as an attorney so that trick of just not responding as an attorney and leaving that open silence something to be aware of uh, and as a deponent you have to be okay with silence
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you have to be okay with silence. You have to answer only the question that's been presented to you. And if it's a video deposition, you have to answer in a manner that makes you look like a decent person. So even though you are playing the game, and you're answering only the question that's in front of you, you have to do it in a way that um, if it was presented to a jury later, it doesn't make you look like a dick because the jury has to sympathize with you they have to know that you're not playing a game or they at least have to believe that you're not playing a game and so it's important to be a decent person and and that's conveyed as well in the transcript if it's not a video deposition
0: definitely um the the idea of that video being played back is you know it's gonna happen it happened i'm thinking about the um the Hulk Hogan issue again. I know we saw the deposition of of uh, one of the editors when they're asking him like when would he ever post a or not post a sex tape you know he gives a terrible answer of you "No, know, if it was a four year old or something I wouldn't you know and it's on video just uh, it's just that was a terrible answer and looked terrible on video looked terrible in writing. That was just nuts yeah. i can't I can't imagine what that guy was thinking.
1: My favorite deposition was um I defended a deposition of one of our clients who is Russian and he spoke in Russian and uh as his his uh normal language, but he also spoke English somewhat poorly, but he you know he was struggling so much, but he was just so likable in his video deposition that you go back and you watch it and you're like, man, that was a great deposition because he answered the question that was posed. He was likable in the manner that he was doing it. He obviously was struggling because he didn't speak English as his first language. And so, like, those combined together made him a very sympathetic witness, which I think also helped at trial for us. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, be a decent person. You know, Mm -hmm. listen to your attorney's advice.
0: Yeah, it's not all that complicated, really. I mean, it's a lot of common sense applies in these kinds of settings you know it seems like this formal thing and you know that you have to follow some rules but you don't you just have to follow common sense and you know not answering you know answer what was asked and nothing more you know unless it's going to help you or you want to kill time then you can just kind of babble on about nonsense you know being careful not to be to be okay with science, silence to understand your mannerisms count Um, Some other pitfalls of of depositions, I'd say, you know, uh, guessing, you know, guessing at answers. Yeah, any speculation is bad. Don't guess. If you don't know, you don't know. If you don't recall, you don't recall.
1: And if it's your opinion, say, well, this is my opinion.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, and these are things that should not be... You can't let the pressure of the situation get to you because you're. Everyone's waiting on your answer, but if your answer is "I don't recall," "I don't know," "This is my opinion," then you have to say that, you know, and don't try to please anyone with your answer. Just say the truth.
1: Yeah, and depositions will be stressful. But I think it's it is worth emphasizing that you're not going to die and relax. A lot of the strategies that opposing counsel will use. Uh, a good one, for example, is that they'll starve you out. So for example, they'll start a deposition at 10 o'clock, you'll go through the 12 o'clock hour, you didn't prepare by eating in advance, and then you start to wear down and you get bad answers. Well, tell them you want a break. Any reasonable attorney is going to give you a break. Those little things, try they try to get under your skin. But again, you're not going to die, you should answer truthfully and, and just stay calm. The worst was watch. I defended my mom's deposition uh, a couple of years ago, and it was the worst because you know you go through this with a client, and you think like, okay, well they're doing okay. They're a little nervous, but when you see somebody that you lived with as a kid go through it, and you're like, oh my god, this like this setting and mm-hmm. the questions are causing this person a massive amount of stress. It's like totally different. You realize how stressful depositions can be for the layperson. Definitely.
0: It is. It's a lot of pressure on someone and it's an uncomfortable setting. You know, opposing counsel typically is they're probably a nice person outside of court and outside of the deposition room, but they're to do a job and you can feel all this pressure. I, I think in the long run, what you say at a deposition usually doesn't make or break a case. no. Right. No. It just doesn't. Cases are complicated. Certainly, it's possible to say the wrong thing and it closes case, but usually there's a lot of moving parts.
1: Yeah, bad attorneys and believe yeah. that they kill the case. Good attorneys are truly yeah. worried about them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it adds a piece to
1: the puzzle, but it's usually just one piece. So let's talk about some news. Um, you brought to my attention that there's a big domain name thing going on with Carly Arena. Is that... Is that right? Yeah. So
0: Ted Cruz made a very probably desperate move of announcing his running mate for president. I don't think Carly Fiorina would be his his running mate as VP. And so, what is the what does the internet do? They go out and buy a bunch of Carly Fiorina for vice president domain names. And redirect them at, you know, all kinds of things. I think the one article that we had uh, shared was about directing it to a Planned Parenthood site or um, something to support Planned Parenthood, which obviously both of those people are um, against. And so it's this kind of land rush of let's go buy up all these domains, Uh, you know, shows... Uh, lack of foresight by the Cruz and Fiorina campaign. Yeah, you know these things are nine bucks um, that they wouldn't go out and buy a bunch of them is kind of stupid.
1: Yeah, it's it's incredibly stupid. I mean, this one, <laughs> I I recall a case that was handled by our good friend Mark Randazza, where the domain name was Glenn Beck raped and murdered a young girl in 1990.com. He defended that um, registration on First Amendment grounds. This one isn't like that. This one's Carly Fiorina for Vice com. It's a pretty straightforward domain. It's the one they should have grabbed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, it just shows they did not think about this at all. I don't know that they thought real well about this entire plan of announcing – Uh, her as a VP and her at this time, when very unclear that he's even going to get the nomination. It's a, it's a strange move all around this idea of just not even looking at domain names. I don't know. It's almost like a change or a just disconnect in, in eras or attitudes where domain names are somehow a afterthought.
1: And for, I think for people of our age, that was, that's what you would think of right away. Well, it, it's a little strange. First of all, TedCruz.com forwards to a photo of Hillary Clinton, which is hilarious. But <laughs> Carly Fiorina was the, the CEO of Hewlett Packard. I mean, how yeah. you're supposed to know how to do this shit? Like, how do you not register your domain name? You're supposed to be a, a important tech CEO. Well, register your damn domain name before you decide to run for vice president.
0: That's hilarious. I didn't know this Ted Cruz. I don't feel like I've heard this Ted Cruz domain name. I going to Hillary. I just
1: I found it in my search results.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So again, you know these people. You know, and there's another tip for people listening: buy your name as your domain name. You know, just go buy it because why not? It's nine ten bucks, and if you don't do it. The only thing that can happen is something bad, oh, basically. Yeah. Like no one's going to buy your name as a domain name and put up something flatter.
1: Why don't you it. tell your story?
0: <laughs> I mean- well, yeah, we had we had a client that had a domain name issue, and we sent a threat letter to the defendant. And he responded by buying my name, my full name and my last name as domain names and then trying to sell them to me. Uh, which was just incredible. I I didn't take my own advice. This was two or three years ago now. Um, And we sued him and got a default judgment uh, against him for quite a bit of money. I don't know if we'll ever collect on it. But, uh, you know, the idea of just getting a threat letter from an attorney and thinking I'm going to go buy his name, his domain name, I didn't even know that was a thing at that time. <laughs> it's a very ballsy move. <laughs> it is very ballsy. And I was shocked. Um, so now I, you know, I I think I bought my, I don't think
1: I've bought my son's name yet. Yeah, you should. Yeah, don't, don't say do his that. name. Somebody yeah. will buy it. I already bought yeah, I our will. daughter's name, uh, well, yeah. two names. Um, so yeah. <laughs> don't say his name. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, I mean, everyone should do it. You know, you
0: don't have to develop an entire website on it, but eh, it never hurts, and it's kind of a fun little hobby if you do something in the future. But it's out there for the taking, and if you don't take it, someone else might. And just because they register, they can register uh, the domain, and just because it's your name doesn't mean you get it.
1: No, it doesn't mean you get it. Personal names are not trademarks. It's going to be difficult for you to get it back if you lose it. So make sure you register it. There are ways to get it back under the uniform excuse me, Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Policy and the Anti Cyber Squad and Consumer Protection Act's personal name provisions. But it all costs money. Just spend the eight dollars or nine dollars to go register it. Defensive registrations are always the, always the best.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, it's so cheap and it's peace of mind. You, you might as well do it. So, you know, this this idea that these people that are going to run our country and run, you know, Fortune 500 companies didn't think about that uh, when they're making these political campaign moves. It's just it's surprising, you know, and this whole idea of domains forwarding and people buying them. I mean, I, Trump did it to Jeb. I mean, this isn't anything new. So the fact that they're still not catching on to this is, I don't know, stupid, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah,
1: definitely stupid.
0: So the other part of the news that we want to talk about is actually a, a huge, huge change in federal law that probably isn't getting enough attention.
1: No, yeah. So this new law is the Defend Trade Secrets Act. It's the It's the equivalent of a new copyright act. Let's just let's throw that out there. It's not as big. We have had trade secret acts across the United States um, through a model law called the um, Uniform Trade Secrets Act, which is adopted by most states uh, in its in its actual form or in some modified form. But Congress passed the Defend Trade Secrets Act, which uh, President Obama will sign soon, and this extends the current uh, Economic Espionage Act of '96 which has um, criminalization penalties for trade secret misappropriations. um, But now it adds a civil remedy that's very similar to the Uniform Trade Secret Act. It also – I'm just scrolling through it now – and it also adds a civil seizure um, section where Mm -hmm. you can apply uh, with an ex parte application, meaning that you can apply even before um, the defendant has made an appearance in court to seize property – that is subject to the trade secret claim. That's a pretty interesting remedy.
0: Very, yeah, and it sounds like most people, I mean, this is brand new, so how is this all gonna work? No one knows, I mean, this is totally uncharted territory. So like, let's talk about trade secrets. So when we tell people we practice intellectual property law, we generally tell them, well, there's four main areas that falls into. Copyright, trademark, patent, and trade secret. Well, the first three all are federal laws and there is a federal registration process. And the trade secret until now has always been this weird kind of stepchild that's not federal law. It's only state law. You don't actually register anything. It is an extremely valuable form of intellectual property protection, but it's kind of amorphous. It's not, you know, you don't get a certificate that says this is a trade secret, you know. And so it's it's this fourth area of IP, and now it's being promoted up to the federal level and federal protection. It's a monumental change. Um, yeah. in how how trade secrets will be protected.
1: It is, and there are some provisions in here that are kind of interesting. There's one that says that a party or person who claims to have an interest in the subject matter seized, this is under that seizure section that I was discussing before, can make a motion to encrypt any material seized. So you go out there and you grab a hard drive with some trade secret material on it and then you encrypt it. It's, it's really interesting, and the motion has to include the desired encryption method. So there's a lot of little things in here that must be tailored towards um, probably trade secret theft that's coming out of Southeast Asia, I would assume. And the damages that are now available under the federal law are pretty interesting. There are damages for actual loss. There is injunctive relief. There are damages for any unjust enrichment that's caused by the misappropriation of a trade secret. Um, So that means that if somebody receives some benefit, there's a way for you to recover that benefit. And then there's also um, a reasonable royalty provision, much like the Patent mm. Act, where instead of asking for actual damages, you can just request a reasonable royalty, which I'm assuming will require some analysis of, you know, what are other people getting for this type of trade secret in the marketplace anyway?
0: Yeah. And this, what does this sound like to me? Sounds like a lot of work for attorneys. Yeah, it really which does. is always a good thing. Yeah. Well, it's a bad thing for us. <laughs> yeah. It's a bad thing for businesses. <laughs> yeah but I mean, enforcing trade secrets was always when it's relegated to state law, it makes life more difficult. I mean, federal courts have certainly move faster in general. I'd say state courts you can get tied up in very long, slow litigation with courts that aren't very sophisticated, yeah, you know if yeah. And so if your federal trade secrets are spanning countries, you know, I mean, it's not too difficult to think about, you know, a supplier in Japan that is accessing some material and then the, from a company in Nebraska, and then that distribution agreement and relationship falls apart, and now someone's taking something that doesn't belong to them. I mean, you don't want to have to file in a small county court. It might not even have the resources to really be able to handle something like that. So federal courts are a much better fit for these things just by way of probably jurisdictional issues, sophistication of judges, um, and, and even just the resources of courtrooms and the ability for e-filing and things like that. I mean, these are very, very complex cases that you know, you don't really, I think most people would probably prefer to be in federal court in these kinds of situations.
1: Yeah. I think federal court definitely is a better place for these, this type of litigation. Uh, state court dockets are so, they see so many different types of cases. You know, some, some States have gone with business courts, which is they, they've been helpful because they have like some area of special specialty, but federal courts are better suited to have the structure needed to dispose of these claims fairly quickly. Uh, there's a survey I'm, – I'm looking at an article that's written by uh, Eric Goldman who's a friend of ours and he's a professor out at Santa Clara. And he cites this uh, AIPLA report on economic survey that the median cost for a trade secret lawsuit with a $1 million to $10 million risk is $925,000. So like one one-tenth of the cost of the risk is going towards attorney's fees. Uh, And he makes the point that, yes, you read that right, a trade secret lawsuit seeking a million dollars costs almost a million dollars to litigate. So hopefully Mm -hmm. this federal – the federalization of this act – or excuse me, of this trade secret law will bring those costs down and we won't be spending as much time litigating over kind of amorphous concepts. Who knows if that will actually happen. It may just increase costs, but that's the hope I think.
0: Yeah, I think there's arguments that – you know, costs could certainly increase, um, but we don't know. I mean, how this is all going to play out is a mystery. I mean, when you, you can bring, you know, right now there's a similar way where you could bring uh, federal trademark infringement. You could bring state law trademark infringement. And a lot of times that happens in lawsuits, although because the two causes of action are, are basically identical, there doesn't, there's not a huge difference. And I think here, because you have this patchwork of state law, there's opportunity for some state law to be more favorable than the federal law. Yeah, um, for certain, yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible because of the way this was set up. Trademark law was, um, it's just by na- its nature is going to be more uniform.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that there is definitely a risk that people will forum shop because they'll see that the federal law or the state law is uh, beneficial. Also, this seizure provision is just so strange that people may abuse it. They may get early injunctive relief because a court doesn't understand what's at risk. They don't understand the technology. And then a company may use that to their competitive advantage to seize assets from a competitor. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely something on the lookout. I mean, trade secrets is, I think, something that most companies don't understand don't value and don't set themselves up for uh, to protect at all you know the idea of a employee a distributor an independent contractor any of those people obtaining information about what makes your business special and taking that to a competitor is just rampant. I mean, the opportunities for that to happen are, are so um, available. And if that happens to a client, they they come to us and say, that just happened. Someone took my information. You know, the first question I'm going to say is, did you have a confidentiality agreement? Yeah. No. How did they get the information? Well, it was right here and we they had access to our Google Drive file. Then that wasn't a secret and it doesn't count as a trade secret. Right. I mean, that is as simple as it gets. I mean, to be a trade secret, you know, it has to be a secret. You have to take steps to maintain its secrecy. You know, this isn't overly complicated. Now, when you get into litigation, it will be extremely complicated. But to start for people just wondering what the hell is a trade secret? Do I have trade secrets? Do I protect them? Well, if you do protect them, then you have them, I guess is the answer. But you have to do something to kind of set up even firewalls within your business of, you know, maybe salespeople shouldn't have access to, you know, patent information or the the, the R&D to projects that may be patented in the future. You know, and does, do the patent people need to really a list of all the potential distributors or customers? No. So – the idea of keeping that information segregated and separate is just one very small example of how a company should probably approach who has access to what information.
1: Yeah. I think physical and non-physical access controls are key. I was just thinking about my, uh, Brooke and I and my wife, we were at the St. Patrick's day parade in Chicago a couple of years ago. And we were with some friends who are Groupon employees and I had used the bathroom. She had to use the bathroom. So uh, there's nowhere to go in downtown Chicago, if you've ever been. So we asked to go to Groupon. So they let us into the building. We left our IDs at the desk. It's a secured environment. And we get upstairs, and, and I'm sitting there in the middle of Groupon's sales floor. And there's computers on. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, I am no one. <laughs> I just scaled mm-hmm. 20 floors. I'm sitting in Groupon's sales floor. I could just stick a thumb drive in here and steal some trade secrets. Mm-hmm. Physical security is its basic. It's like exactly as you said. Don't give people the customer list if they don't need it. Don't uh, make sure you know who has the key code to the building.
0: Simple mm-hmm. things. Yeah, it is. And, and trade secrets, you know, I think it's an area I've always thought in the brewing industry. Uh, and craft beer is so big here in Michigan. I've always thought trade secrets was such an important thing that breweries should do is to protect their recipes. And, you know, I've talked to some brewers about that and they kind of just say, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but it's not going (laughs) to happen. You know, it's kind of like, well, these are chefs, you know, chefs not going to agree, you know, and if they brought that recipe with them or whatever, they're not going to, they're not going to agree to never use it again you know, if they leave. And so, you know, I think common sense, although I think it would be really helpful. I think in that industry, it seems like there's kind of a unwritten rule that you don't, you don't overly lawyer up.
1: Yeah. And that's sad because the litigation that we've been involved in is over recipes. Some brewer, chief brewer of the company leaves to go start his own thing because he's not getting equity. And then, Take some recipes with them, and the two parties end up in litigation. And it's like, well, you know, I know you didn't want a lawyer, and you didn't want a lawyer yeah. up, but <laughs> now you're going to spend a good forty thousand dollars to litigate yeah. this case. Yeah, you're going to spend a lot more now. So,
0: yeah, it's just this. This is a, a huge shift in trade secret law in the country. It's and it's an area that I think maybe this is a good thing, and maybe it'll get more attention to what is a trade secret, how do I protect it. Because it's all on you. You're like I said. You're not going to get that raised seal on a piece of paper with the gold star on it, saying, "Hey, this is a trade secret." It's up to you to to create and to maintain. And it's not difficult, but
1: you got to be methodical about it. Ooh, we should start a trade secret certification program. A private. There you flow, go. And then give little gold seals. <laughs> Patent pending. Yeah. Don't tell anyone, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, i mean it the
0: an audit of are you doing something to maintain your trade secrets is certainly something people should think about and things we've done before um and it's nice to see
1: companies thinking that far ahead but yeah this is a good thing i'm excited yeah i am too. i
0: can't wait to litigate some of
1: this yeah stuff. i i love new law i know people hate new law but i love it because it adds it's it's the time to make precedent that's what we get excited yeah. about Definitely. Oh, I'm excited. So, well, I think that's
0: probably our time for today's show. Um, If you have any questions or comments, reviews, certainly find us on iTunes, Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're all over. We'd love to hear questions from you guys even just go through our webpage and drop a line as to topics that you've always wondered about or just thought you would like to hear us chime in on, uh, anything like that. We always appreciate your comments.
1: Yeah, and if you think we should be on Snapchat, let us know because I just read an article that – 16 to 34-year-olds, 60% are on Snapchat, and I find that absolutely insane. So I don't know why. Why would we do that? Tell me. If if you have a reason. I'm not on it. (laughs) Well, if there's a reason, somebody tell me why we should do it.
0: The only thing I've heard that is somewhat funny to me would be that, like, I think people, like celebrities, sports athletes, are, like, more apt to, like, Put up funnier, kind of more risky pictures. Ah, okay. (laughs) Um, Which could be interesting. So I guess we could join as a firm, and you could see um, what you could see—the mail
1: being opened. (laughs) You may see who it's addressed to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could see an address here or there. You could see some uh, some file structures in our in our Google Drive settings. Could be some really, really cool stuff. So maybe we'll think about that.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, have a good week, everybody.
0: All right. We'll see you later.